with another edition of the Survival Podcast. As always, one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, and the things that we can all do to live a better life if times get tough or even if they don't. Coming to you once again from Hot Springs Village, Arkansas, high across the Highway 7 Ridge Line up near Hot Springs Village from TSPN, the Survival Podcast Network headquarters. It is Friday. It is May the 20th, 2011, and I sound jazzed up today. If I do, it's because it's really sinking in that this is really happening. I am really here. This is really my office. My home is only 10 miles away from here, and I do not have to go back to Arlington and drive in that traffic ever again except to see my family when it's on vacation, which I can tolerate. So, the other reason I'm jazzed today, though, is it's Friday, and Friday for me is not about the weekend because every day is like a weekend when you do what you love. What the big deal for Friday is to me is because it's my favorite shows to do, because I get to hear from you. They take more work. I have to go through and filter this stuff out, but these are all your calls. They come into 866-65-THINK. Again, 866-65-THINK. There's a recording machine there. You leave a message. Two minutes or less, be concise to the point, like the callers you'll hear today, and I will get back to you sometime in the future. Usually I'm about a month out in answering your calls right now. I might pull in some calls. like I might do some shows in the coming weeks where I do one or two questions per show, um, like at the end, like an end segment or something, to kind of catch up on the backlog I've created with this. But generally it was three weeks running on answering your questions, so new stuff would be better by email. Before we get into your questions, though, today, let's go ahead and take care of our sponsors. They do a lot to help take care of you by making sure the show is here for you five days a week, Monday through Friday. Sponsor of the day number one today, Emergency Essentials. You can find them at BePrepared.com. Again, I don't know how the Boy Scouts haven't gone after them and tried to get that domain name away from them, but it's a good domain for Emergency Essentials, and I'll tell you why, because they help you be prepared for any emergency that might come your way. What they really specialize in most is long-term storage food, everything from like the Mountain House providing pantry number 10 can stuff to big giant uh, you know, prepackaged buckets of long-term storage grains and rice and things like that. Great food calculator, a lot of informational resources available on their site. Great catalog. Make sure you, if you haven't done this yet, go by BePrepared.com today. That's Emergency Essentials website. Or go to our website, click on their banner. You'll see them in the right-hand margin where all our sponsors are. And, uh, you know, make sure that you're on their mailing list to get their catalog. It's a great catalog. Next up today, Western Botanicals. You know, when I'm in need of something herbal, whether I want an herbal preparation or I'm putting something together myself, if I don't have it, if I can't, if I, you know, I haven't grown it recently and don't have it available, if I can't wildcraft it, if I need it, I go to Western Botanicals because if there's an herb out there that's beneficial to me and I want it, I can find it there. I can also find cool things that are hard to find from other suppliers like, The, the menthol crystals, for instance, for using, for making your own liniments that they have are really unique. I haven't found them anywhere else. And if you need information, pick the phone up, give them a call. They'll help you pick out what you need. They'll help you put it together. Uh, their belief is there should be an herbalist in every home. That's their, their core mission is to provide enough information that every home can have its own personal herbalist there. Maybe not the professional herbalist that goes out and prescribes, but have the basic general knowledge to be able to do things to make yourself healthier and make yourself feel better when you feel bad and help heal uh, wounds and illnesses and things like that. 
Also remember, they do support the Member Support Brigade. If you join the Member Support Brigade, make sure you give Western Botanicals a call. Give them the code you'll find in your back office area of your Member Support Brigade membership, and they will give you their free their premium membership for free. 25% off everything they sell. They sell that for $50 bucks a year, so one benefit pays for your entire first year of the Member Support Brigade. How cool is that? Uh, next up today, make sure you're checking out our gear shop. We have hats. We have uh, we have T-shirts. We have Coins. We have all kinds of cool stuff. We have lanyards. Uh, we have these great geocaching coins. Man, you got to get some of these if you haven't yet, even if you don't do geocaching. They're a cool way to share the show, and they're cheap. Three bucks a piece. Uh, we also have um, some really cool dog tag. Uh, they look like a dog tag, but they're actually a bottle opener to go and be part of your EDC on your keychain and things like that. Check those out. Those are great gifts. They're a few bucks. Um, and also remember, I had Gary Vaynerchuk on the show to talk about building personal brand equity as part of modern survival philosophy. Actually, being marketable—you know, losing a job is a big, uh, a big, you know, uh, setback for people. Just like uh, losing a family member, and it's the disasters that is personally that are most likely. Well, Gary, uh, you know, to get him on the show, he's a heat merchant, man. I had to really go out of my way. I bought 80 copies of the Thank You Economy. We were basically giving them away for the cost of shipping. They're in the gear shop. So if you'd like a copy of that book, check the gear shop out for that. Last but not least, do consider joining the Member Support Brigade. You do that, you get exclusive content available only to members. And with that, I'm ready to go in and start taking your first call. Hey, Jack. My name is William. Love listening to your show. I currently subscribe to the National Inflation Association at inflation.us. They send me updates on the economy. I got something recently I'd like to read to you and see what you think of it. The Federal Reserve has unbind 70% of all new U.S. Treasury debt. Up until this year, the U.S. has been successful at exporting most of its inflation to the rest of the world, which is hoarding huge amounts of U.S. dollars due to the U.S. dollar status as the world reserve currency. In recent months, foreign central bank purchases of U.S. Treasuries have declined from 50% down to 30%, while Federal Reserve purchases have increased up from 10% to 70%. This means U.S. government deficit spending is now directly leading to U.S. inflation that will destroy the standard of living for all Americans. So my question is, they say it's now leading to the destruction. I thought as long as we're borrowing and spending money we don't have, that it's bad no matter what, that it will create inflation no matter what. So why is it so much worse that we're borrowing from the Fed as opposed to China? Moreover, why would we want to borrow money from China anyways when we can borrow it from ourselves? Is it cheaper to borrow from China or other countries? Are we able to slow down inflation when we borrow from other countries? I thought once you spend money that you don't have and you start to increase your money supply, that's going to cause inflation regardless. Um, you clear that up, that would be awesome. Also, too, why would we even borrow from China? Why would we just keep all our money in-house? That way we're not beholden to any other country. That way there's no risk of starting a war if we default on our debts. You know, someone told me the other day, well, other countries can't sell their debt, only America can. I didn't think that was right, but then again, I didn't know enough to call them out on it, so I was wondering if you can clear that up, too. Are other countries allowed to sell their debt as well? Thanks, Jack. Appreciate it. All right, that is a fabulous question. Uh, went a little bit long, a little bit of background noise and kind of muffled, but I uh, work with it and try to make it as listenable to the audience as I can because it's such a fabulous question. And it's one I'm sure that a lot of people have, and maybe a lot of you even have this question don't know you have it. Because maybe you're confused by the same way here. And the, the reality is, based on what I'm getting about the article, I haven't read it, so I don't want to, you know, you know, 
put things on the author that, that are wrong, but um, the author's not exactly correct. and not wrong either. It's not that inflation is hitting the U.S. for the first time. It's that it's hitting the U.S. harder than before, specifically due to QE1 and QE2, or the quantitative easing that the Fed's doing, and how much the Fed is doing what they do to create new money. Let's start out with an understanding. Debt does not equal inflation. Okay, I know a lot of people, debt and inflation are highly linked to each other, in the, in the economic system, the, the, the fractional reserve system that runs our nation. But they are not the same thing. Let's start out with simple debt. We borrow money. I don't care if it's from China or a little old lady. It all costs the same. All right. There's an interest rate set by the market to, uh, to, for a treasury bond. So the treasury needs some money to help fund the government's activity. So it creates some treasury bonds and it sells them. It sets them at a face value. Say it's a hundred dollar bond and it's a five year bond. Well, if somebody's willing to pay, um, $95, then that bond is going to appreciate by 5% over five years or about 1% a year. That's, that's, that's real basic math. Never works out that way, but that's just to make it simple for you to understand. That's how the bond's interest rate is set. It's not like the bond comes with an interest rate written on it. It's sold at a face value. And then how much will the market pay for that face value? How much will you pay today to have that face value tomorrow? So it's not exactly the same because when it's sold in large amounts to financial institutions, foreign governments and things like that, they do that and that sets the price. Then, That sets the market rate where if you or I go buy a couple thousand dollars worth of bonds, we do get an interest rate based on what happened there. All right. Now, when that happens, what you have to understand is that doesn't create any money. Existing money, whether it's Chinese renminbi, uh, whether it's uh, whether it's British pounds, whether it's U.S. dollars from an old lady buying two thousand dollars worth of government bonds, no matter what it is, all that's happened is existing money was now given to the government. And no money's been created, so no inflation has occurred. What happens, though, and this is the part that nobody gets because your mind will repel this idea. Okay, It will absolutely repel this idea because it seems ridiculous on its face. When the Fed decides there needs to be more money in the economy, what they do is they buy the bond from the little old lady, from the Chinese government, from Bank of America, from the British government, from the Japanese government, from whoever wants to sell their bonds back early to the Fed, okay, before maturity. Now, this is where the inflation comes from. This is hard. Please, if you've not heard this before, listen, because when you understand this, you'll understand why the entire system is just ridiculous. When the Fed does this, let's say that you, dear listener, right now, you are China. You are the, the, the People's Republic of China, and you are holding a million dollars worth. You're actually holding billions and billions and billions. A million dollars worth of bonds you want to sell back to the Federal Reserve. So the Federal Reserve says, I'll buy your bonds. Now, that would seem to not really make any new money. But what happens is the Federal Reserve types some numbers into a computer, and they deposit one million U.S. dollars into the People's Republic of China's account, which, of course, you will then convert to renminbi to use, but the dollars will circulate through the global economy. If the Federal Reserve used money to do that, no new money would have been created, but they don't use money. They simply make a computer entry, and it creates new money. They now hold the bond. We, the people of the United States of America, now instead of owing the Chinese the million dollars, owe the one million dollars to the Federal Reserve, who did nothing to get it. Nothing at all, at all, at all. They did nothing. They provided no consideration. They provided no money. They created new money with a computer entry. 
That has now expanded the money supply. What the author may be saying is when this is done, and it's being done by buying back from the Chinese, it's being done by buying back from the British, it's being done by buying back from, from the Japanese or from the Greeks or from anybody who bought a bond offshore, it takes longer for those U.S. dollars to filter back through the U.S. economy, and we're exporting some of the inflation. doesn't really work that way, but it, there's a, a slowdown in the, how quick the inflation is seen. But it does increase the money supply. When you start buying the money, when you start buying the bonds back from a U.S. bank, like Bank of America or U.S. Bank or, you know, Citibank or anybody else, especially when you're doing it in the form of buying it back, so you're providing it in exchange for toxic assets, which is some of what's gone on with quantitative easing, not just straight bond buys, but you're just making a journal entry and you're putting the money directly into the U.S. market, it goes liquid in the U.S. market faster. So that means... The money has a higher velocity. It moves faster in our economy. There's two things that cause inflation, and this is important. One is how many dollars there are. The more dollars, the less each dollar is worth. But you can have tons and tons of dollars, and if they're all being held in a bank somewhere and not being spent or loaned, there's a very small effect on inflation as long as they sit there. Now, when the dam breaks, they can run, it can run away from you. The other side of that, then, is the velocity of money, how quickly that money moves through the economy. The, uh, and then it, there's one more level. See, the banks at the local level do this, too. When you buy a house and you go get a mortgage for $200,000 from Bank of America, you think they give you $200,000. I, I know some of you are going to have a hard time with this, especially if you haven't heard my shows on this before. Bank of America doesn't give you $200,000. Bank of America makes a journal entry, creates a new $200,000, and further expands the monetary supply, holding your mortgage in consideration for creating the money out of thin air. So if the money's being bought up in the U.S., pushed into the banking sector, and being loaned out, the money supply will expand more rapidly than if the money is doing this overseas. Therefore, the inflation actually is the same, but it will be seen quicker if it's done domestically versus in the foreign markets. That's, I guess, what your author is saying. But the reality is it's not about the debt. It's about the Fed buying the debt back with nothing and creating more money and creating more dollars. What inflation is is a hidden tax. The elite banking layers, when they want more money, they do this game. And by printing more money, they get to keep some of it. They do nothing to get it. And the way their money gets its value and the way the money they put into the economy gets its value is it sucks its value from its brother and sister dollars. So if there were only $100 in circulation, the dollar would be very, very strong, right? And it would be ridiculous. You'd be buying stuff with a penny, right? But if there were only $100, it would be a certain strength of the currency, both here in America and foreign exchange rates. It would be a very strong currency. We'd be using fractions of a penny to buy a home. If we then expand it from $100 to a million dollars, the value of each dollar goes dramatically down. And when we expand it to a trillion, it goes further down. You have to do this to a point. I'm not, you know, the concept isn't all bad in a modern global uh, economic system. If your currency is too strong, it's hard for other countries to do business with you. So you want to keep the currencies at certain levels of strength and weakness against each other. This is called currency manipulation. We scream at the Chinese. It's what we do all the time. The Chinese are manipulating their currency. Yes, so do we. That's what quantitative easing is, manipulation of the currency's value. The key is whenever that new money is created, 
some value of the existing money is sucked up. I know I went long on that, but that one's so important. So hopefully that answers the question. Let's go ahead and take another one completely unrelated and go on to a different topic. Hey, Jack. It's John in West Virginia. Uh, I just want to know your thoughts on alternative lighting sources as far as candles, lanterns, light sticks, uh, rechargeable lanterns, whatever you think. I'm just trying to line my things out here and ready to make a good top. Thanks a lot. Later, man. I don't think I've ever listened to a question from John from West Virginia and not answered it just because I dig his voice so much, man. Um, really, you are like kind of an adopted brother of the show just because uh, you're so distinctive there. So thanks for calling in again, John. Um, on alternative lighting, I think it's a lot of its personal preference. What do you want? What do you want to gain out of it? But kind of here is my minimal list of things that you should have in your house. You should have a, a, a certain number, and I'd say for most households, it's a minimum of at least four standard flashlights to use standard batteries. Uh, and those should be not all in one place, at least maybe two here and two there. Honest to God, we have flashlights in almost every drawer in the home. Uh, we buy these cheap little ones. You get it like Home Depot, Tractor Supply, the little LED ones that come with free batteries, and they're almost cheaper than buying the batteries. And uh, we just put them everywhere. So that means that if lights go out, if you're in, you know, if you're in the bathroom, open the drawer, there's a light there. If you're in the truck and it's dark outside, even if you don't have your EDC because you forgot it or something, uh, you open the, 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 the truck uh, glove box, there's a light in there. You're fishing, you need a light, there's one in the town. I mean, the damn things are so cheap. I have them literally every freaking where. Some of them I have to look for now with the move because it all got boxed up, but they'll be that way again. I've seen these things sell like for a dollar ninety nine, so that gives you an idea there. So that's that is just an emergency. Find where you're going and get to, to better lighting solutions. On the the wind up lanterns, we have three. I think that a couple of those at least is a good idea. I have one with a radio built into it. It's not a great radio, but hell, it works. I have a couple uh, different emergency wind up radios. All of those have a light source in them. So that takes you a long way right there because I've got. You know, short term with the, the battery flashlights and I've got rechargeable lanterns and I've got uh, lights within the rechargeable radios. So that, that helps out a lot. I'm a big believer in candles. I think you need to have not just candles, though, but something to burn them in, little sconces or, or whatever you call them, little glasses. Um, I think one of the greatest things that you can have around the house in large numbers that are dirt cheap, watch for them to go on sale are tea lights. Every time I see a big bag of like 100 tea lights on sale for like 3 bucks at one of the craft stores my wife drags me to, you made me come, we're getting 100 tea lights. You know, and She's like, we got a million of them. No, we don't have a million of them. We have about 500 of them. Now we have 600 of them. Um, they're great because they, you know, they burn only about an hour, but you can have a bunch of them around the house. Some good solid candles as well. I also am a big believer in what I call the, the, what are actually called emergency power failure lights. These look like a night light. You plug them into the wall. Uh, when the lights go out, they are a night light, but they also have a flashlight function. If the power goes off, they immediately turn themselves on so you can get to the wall and find one, pick it up, and you take it with you like a flashlight. I had uh, two of them downstairs, two of them upstairs at the old house. I'll basically have one in each secondary bedroom, one in the hallway, one in the kitchen, and one in the master bathroom in the house up here. I don't want one in the master bedroom because they are like a nightlight and they're kind of annoying. I like to sleep in the dark. Um, that's a pretty good outlay, and that'll get you through most situations. Ideally, long term, you'd like to have at least some level of solar uh, with some backup lighting. 
And I think that's a, that's a kind of a good first big solar project. You know, at least 100 watts of solar panels, a couple batteries, and some lighting throughout the house that's wired DC back to your battery backup. Uh, that will take you forever in a day. It really will. I mean, on a really bad day, you might not get enough charge to do a lot, but as long as you're not trying to run anything but lighting, uh, that kind of a setup will take you a very, very long way, especially if you put in your backup lighting using things like RV lighting. So you go get your RV lighting, which is already set up to run on 12 volts, uh, and then go get yourself the automotive lights that plug into there, because those use auto automotive headlight light. Well, there's the new LED versions of them that are much lower draw and much brighter. And if you set up your backup lighting using RV lighting in those, which some I haven't done yet, but it's something I'm going to do uh, now that we're here, you really have a good long-term lighting solution. So that's kind of how I put that together in a, in a comprehensive way. Let's take another question. Hey, Jack, just listened to episode 639 with Rod Hood about everyday carry. I heard that you like to carry the Streamlite Stylus Pro. I carry the Micro. Anyways, uh, just wanted to recommend a product that I think is better than the Stylus Pro and the Micro. This is what I'm going to upgrade to is the, the 4.7's Prion 2. On the uh, highest output, it puts up to uh, 160 lumens on the high setting, and then the, also has the 2.2 uh, lumens on the low setting, so, you know, for maximum battery life, you know, for more of a utility end as well as a concealed carry uh, light. Anyways, just wanted to mention that. Get your thoughts on it. Thanks. Bye. Okay, well, I looked up the light that you mentioned there, and um, you said something like four sevens. And um, when I look at the pictures, it actually has a forty-seven on the uh, on the actuator knob, but that's not how it was listed. It was uh, listed as the Prion Two R Five. Uh, is the one that I found with that nomenclature on it, and it's 160 lumens of total output, which is a very bright, blinding light. I think it's probably an excellent light. The one I found is actually the Prion 2 R5 flashlight titanium, and uh, 63 bucks. And it looks like a great light. I mean, obviously, I can only say so much about it because I've never actually put one in my hand and, and checked it out. It's it, from what I can see, it's definitely a major upgrade from the Streamlight Stylus Pro. Uh, there's various versions of the Prion uh, with somewhere in the range of 100 to 160 lumens, other than the titanium, uh, different versions ranging from about 43 to $63. Um, I'd like to get one for review. I'm not in a position right now where I'm going to dump uh, 60 bucks though just to review one so maybe as I get Dorothy into the office starting next week I'll have her contact these people see if they would donate one for a review on our YouTube channel my instinct though right now is that it's not going to make me willing to shovel out three times as much over the stylus now the stylus pro that I carry uh, is nowhere near as powerful on its light output. It has a light output rating of 24 lumens, but I can tell you it's a bright little light. It's affordable uh, at about 20 bucks. So um, I think that if you if you have a blue sky budget and money's not a, uh, an issue, uh, I think it's a great uh, carry light, the uh, Prion 2. 
I think that if you want to make sure you have a light today and you don't want to save spend too much money, and let's say you're a two-adult uh, household and you want one for both people for EDC and one for a reserve, I can buy three Stylus Pros for the cost of one Prion 2. It is not as good of a light, but I think it is a very highly functional light, and I think it will remain my EDC unless Prion gives me one. Um, again, if I was a, if I was a, a little bit better off financially, I might go to that as an upgrade. I would definitely see it as an upgrade. Uh, another thing to look at, though, uh, that I think should be considered is the is the weight of what you're carrying. And it's another case where the Prion 2 actually excels. It's uh, about 0.8 ounces versus about 1.6 ounces of the Stylus Pro. So even though it's it's more than, more powerful, it weighs less. So it's, it's probably a great light. I'll put a link to both of them uh, at survivalpodcast.com. And I'm not saying anything bad about the Prion, just without examining it personally and actually, uh, you know, taking an assessment of it, its, its lighting capabilities, how it's built, and, and knowing I've carried the Stylus Pro for a year and how well it's held up for me, uh, I can't say that I would immediately recommend paying three times as much for one, but it looks like a damn solid light. I, I don't think you would go wrong by purchasing one. Let's go ahead and take another call. Hey, Jack. Mike in Virginia again. I just thought I'd convey a quick story about something that's happened to me recently that we don't talk about too often. Um, two weekends ago, I had my well pump, my hot water heater, and the water softener all die on me within 48 hours of each other. Started with there's no hot water, honey, the hot water's leaking water, thought I had it fixed, turned out the water softener wasn't working, led to the well pump had problems, but I learned that Not only is it important to have food and ammo and the other things that we talk about a lot, but the materials on hand to repair basic things in the home before you need them is critical. When the well pump first went out, we thought we had a problem with the switch, which is the most likely problem, or the most likely place things have a problem first. It was 11 o'clock at night. I couldn't get another switch. If I'd have just had that $20 part on hand, the pressure switch, I could have replaced it that night. Turned out it wasn't the issue, but I have an extra one now. So sometimes having parts like a couple extra feet of pipe, the ability to sweat joints, a couple of extra ball valves, things that are most likely the things to fail in a plumbing system or an electrical system, having those on hand can also be quite helpful. We're all up and working now, but uh, it's been about two weeks of fighting with uh, with warranty companies and such to get the, the equipment replaced. So you know, it wasn't a big emergency, but it certainly affected my family directly. Thanks, Jack. Bye. Well, I don't have a lot to add to that. I think it pretty much speaks for itself that it's a good idea to have uh, backup parts wherever and whenever you can. The problem is that it's really difficult to do it for all the things that can fail. We've got vehicles, we've got pumps, we've got you know heat pumps, we've got plumbing, as you're saying. Um, but the stuff that's most likely to fail makes sense. One of the things I think people just make a huge mistake of is not keeping fuses around. Uh, I don't know how many times I've had something go out on me that simply replacing a fuse fixed it. On the well, I remember it's about two, two or three years ago we got up to uh, Arkansas here. We we're still living down there in Texas, and um, we uh, we got into the house, turned the faucet on, drip, drip, drop, and there was this per certain module that's you know kind of special because we have a special well pump because well I didn't get to pick it when we bought it, and apparently when you buy special ones you get special parts that cost a lot of money. And this part really wasn't that expensive. It was like 120 bucks, which it doesn't, it's not going to make me happy writing the check, but if I can turn my water back on for $120, it's a quick check to write. 
Problem was that uh, the the well this was like the day after Christmas and everything was closed for a couple of days and it took two days to get the part in. So I got two of them and I had the guy that did it show me how to test it uh, and determine that it had failed and uh, how he put it in. So I could replace it in a couple minutes now if I had to. So he said that would probably be the most likely thing to fail on my pump and it fails when it's um, shorted out by being hit with uh, lightning. And that's what actually hit that if there's a ground strike close enough to the well pump, it can short out that particular module. So if you know of something that's likely to fail, it's a great idea to, to have a replacement part for it. And another thing is if you're going to get a replacement part, you're going to buy a new one, you've got one sitting in there that's been in there for a long time, it may be a good idea to take the old one out, which is still serviceable. It still works. It's a backup part put it into storage and put the new one in so you're now running a brand new component. This is what I did with like the belts and hoses on my on my vehicle. At 60,000 miles, I replaced every belt uh, that's easy to access, serpentine belts, standard belts, what have you. Not a timing belt. That's a big job. Uh, but your standard belts and all hoses. And uh, take all the ones that I've already had, clean them up, rub them down with armor all That helps them last longer. Put them in, into the trunk and keep them there uh, with some basic tools so that I can replace those on the fly if I have to. Belts are a little bit of a pain in the butt, but they're not that bad. Uh, something I generally wouldn't want to do on the side of the road, but if I was somewhere where I had to, I, I would. I'd, I'd probably call AAA and get it taken care of in most situations, but there's areas where that might not be an option. Um, and then, you know, there's times where that might not be an option. A hose is, as long as I can get water to, uh, to fill back up the coolant system, that's a five-minute job. It really is. And having extra hoses is cheap insurance. So a lot of stuff like that, good call. Sorry you, uh, you, you had that run of bad luck, but at least it was in threes. They say that the bad luck comes in threes. Maybe you're done with it for a while. Let's take another call. Hi, Jack. This is Sean. Um I'm, uh, I have a question for you. I want to plant a uh, fruit tree in my yard, but I want to kind of know uh, what I'm getting into. Um, am, I, am I buying a cat or a dog? You know, is this uh, something that's going to need a lot of attention um, and maintenance or uh, not so much? Um, I, I'm in Ohio, about an hour south of Cleveland, so I think that's zone five or six. Um, so I uh, appreciate your feedback. Uh, thanks, man. With a very few exceptions, there's no more to managing a fruit tree than there is to managing any tree that would be in your backyard. Uh, regular annual pruning and uh, a little bit more complicated, I guess, in some ways with your pruning, but it's just a matter of what you want. You really want to create at least two, two four branch scaffolds. So when you first plant your fruit tree, you want to top it and encourage outward growth. And you want to encourage uh, two places to put out four branches. There's a lot of videos on uh, pruning fruit trees you can find on YouTube. But by the time you get into your third or fourth year, the pruning is pretty much just maintenance pruning. You're not really trying to do much shaping at that point anymore. And that's it. It's a tree. And it grows like any other tree. And they should be in every yard in America. I don't understand what the aversion Americans have to growing fruit and nuts and other things we can eat is. And why we think it's a better idea to take trees and genetically mutate them and modify them and hybridize them and do whatever we can to make them not produce food. Uh, so there's not a lot to it. One thing you do want to consider is the fruit you'll be growing. If you, uh, 
you plant a cherry tree and you got a lot of birds in the area and it's a large full-size cherry tree that the birds start p picking all the cherries off the top of and then start doing what birds do after they eat lots of cherries on your car and your garage and your your, your patio and things like that, you might be cussing me uh, in the future. If you put in a great big mulberry tree and you put in a black mulberry instead of the white mulberry and it's too close to your house and those between birds and the berries themselves start staining things, you might be cussing me. So you want to think about the overall size of the tree And, and you want to make sure you plant something you're going to want to eat. You know, if you don't like apples, don't plant an apple tree. If you don't like pears, don't plant a pear tree. The other thing you have to look at is, uh, is pollinization. Uh, a lot of apples need a pollinator. So you need to find out are there any other apples in your general vicinity of your neighborhood? Do you have enough room for two trees? And then you want to talk to your arborist or look in a catalog and pick apples that come to flower at the same time. Certain apples flower early, some mid-season, some late. So if you do a mid-season variety apple, you want to do another mid-season variety apple. If there's a neighbor with an apple tree, you want to find out what variety is. And when it flowers, you want to get pick an apple that's going to take advantage of that as a cross-pollinator. There are some self-fertile apples, um, so you can look into that. It's something queen, I think, is one of the self-fertile. There's not many of them. Um, most of your uh, your plums are self-fertile, but you're probably a bit far north for most of those. So you're going to want to pick something that will grow well in your area that you can assure cross-pollination of um, and something you'd like to use and you'd like to eat. And understand you're waiting two or three years before you start to get a harvest. The big thing is when the tree goes into production, you need to go out there and harvest If you don't, you're going to end up with a lot of rotted fruit laying on the ground. So you want to make sure that you're going to use, the, the again, the variety of fruit you want to pick. Another thing you can do to get very high-quality fruit is do some thinning. So when you get into the fruit set and you go outside and you've got the branches laden down with little baby apples that are all going to become big apples, if you get rid of half of the little apples and throw them away, you'll get better results from the ones that you leave behind. Uh, so, I mean, those are the only types of things. Other than that, it's a tree that grows, you know, it, it grows and it produces. Um, I've seen, you know, with nut trees, I've seen pecans that nobody's done anything to for 50 years. And every year, just pecans fall off the trees and people go pick them up. I've seen them in parks like that. So it's the first couple of years that require some shaping. You also, again, want to look at your rootstock. You probably don't want a full-size apple tree in a typical suburban front yard or backyard. Uh, it's a massive tree. You probably want to go with a, a dwarf or semi-dwarf rootstock. If you do not have other trees around you for pollination, you would be better off putting in two dwarfing variety apples than one great big one because they can pollinate each other. So there's the kind of things you want to look at, but long-term management, you don't rake leaves like any deciduous tree, and you get to eat food. Let's go ahead and take another call. Hey, Jack. It's Tom from Central Kentucky. Uh, just uh, an outrageous uh, comment real quick and then a question. Uh, I just came across an article slash slideshow on the CNBC website where they were talking about cult leaders, religious type leaders, things like that. Uh, and uh, they actually included Jim Rawls and other preppers like him uh, in as like de facto cult members. I uh, emailed you a link to that site so you could check it out for yourself. It's unbelievable. And I'm sure uh, we'd love to hear your comments about that. Um, anyway, the question also uh, pertaining to Rawls is uh, on his website, I came across recently that he was uh, advocating uh, purchasing rolls of nickels and uh, because of their copper and nickel content, and they're worth like seven, uh, 
like 7.5 cents right now per nickel because of the metal content. And he was urging to stockpile those for various reasons. I was wondering if you knew about that type of thing and what you thought about that, especially nickels in particular. Thanks a lot. Appreciate it. Look forward to hearing your uh, replies on the air. Bye-bye. Well, I won't say too much on the Rawls thing because I already talked about it from your email. So I'd gotten your email and put that into one of the email shows uh, about a month ago, I think, at least that was. Uh, so that tells you how long I'm working on the backlog of these calls right now trying to catch up now that we're, uh, we're settled down again. Um, but I, what I'll say is this. Rawls makes it easy for that to happen because he focuses so much on the tactical aspects of things. And if you read his book, Patriots, it's very easy to come off with the belief that he's a complete, total end-of-the-world doomer, period, and that Patriots is how he thinks the economic collapse would look. Uh, whereas Patriots was a novel written to you know, bring out everything you could do as a prepper in the worst-case scenario. If you read his blog on the economy, he actually sees it much more as a downward spiral uh, rather than a tremendous thud, which is uh, where I think he and I agree a lot. Um, but here's why I don't get too upset about it. I know that that article was written by probably a, uh, a journalist, uh, what do you call him, uh, uh, intern, uh, where you know some lead journalist said the intern, go gather me up 10 or 8 or whatever the number was, and it's always an even number, and it's always something like 8, 10, or 12 Colts. And the journalist student was like, I need one more, I need one more. And they you know, put on Twitter or something, it's crazy survivalist. And that's how that happened, and nobody really gives a damn about it. Um, I do think anybody that actually believes that someone that listens to what James Rawls says or what I say or anybody in this industry says is in a cult is a retard. And I mean that in a very derogatory, non-medical way. Uh, I, you have to be messed up in the head to believe that you're in a cult because you think it makes sense to be prepared for bad things to happen because you can look around and see bad things happening to people every single stinking day. I'll, and I'll let that go because I've commented on before. On the nickels... Um, it's true that as copper continues to go up in price, a nickel is worth more than its face value at melt. Um, if I'm going to stockpile anything, I'm going to stockpile pre-82 pennies. It's pure copper, 95% copper. And uh, it's a much easier proposition if coins ever go away to actually be have the copper extracted from it. The nickels are cased in nickel. It would be a very energy-intensive process to turn nickels into copper and nickel. It's actually a fairly low energy use process to extract the zinc and copper from an all copper or a 95% copper penny that's pre-1982. So I think long term that the potential, if it's ever acceptable to melt the things down and use them as a type of bullion, if you want to call them that, uh, the penny is a better bet. More work, because you have to sort them, either with the, there's machines that do it by weight, uh, or you have to do it manually, which is kind of fun. You go buy a box of pennies once a week, and you go through them, and you find some wheat pennies and some cool stuff, and you take the pennies back and buy another box, and that can go on for years and years. There's people doing it as a profession now. You can go to eBay and buy all copper pennies sorted with these machines, and they make these machines that do this by weight. You dump them in, and it can. some of them can do thousands per hour, and they're slowly picking their way through there. With a nickel, you can use a nickel from 1964. You can use a nickel from yesterday uh, that came out of the mint yesterday, and you, you have the same content. That's what makes it easy. But I just don't see, I see you, if you do that, ending up with a whole bunch of nickels. And I don't ever really see the day that those nickels are cashable for, the, for what's in them because of the energy usage that will be required to get the copper and the nickel separated. 
a uh, higher melting temperature of nickel, the way it's clad together. A copper penny is zinc, and not the new pennies, but the old pennies. It's copper and zinc mixed together in an alloy. It's a very simple process to, 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 uh, to, to pull those apart. Uh, that's why back in the uh, early 80s when metal prices were crazy high, uh, people were taking pennies to the junkyard and they first started doing these laws against melting the penny. Uh, by not changing the penny in 1982 physically to the eye, they made it very difficult for people to cull them out. And uh, I think that was done intentionally. So I'm not stockpiling nickels. Yeah, you know, if you want to, it won't hurt anything. Uh, but I think the penny's a better play. Let's go take another call. Jack Carson from Canada here. Gardening really is taking off. I look in the book section, and all of a sudden I'm seeing all these books about plants. Edible and medicinal plants of Canada. Just ask Jerry good answers to tough questions out. Do tough Canadian gardening questions. Organic gardening for Canada. A bunch of books by a lady named Lois Cole. Perennials for Alberta. The Canadian Edible Garden. Beginner for Canada. Tree and Shrub Gardening for Alberta. And on. And on. Hey. Something's different. I'm not sure if Carson maybe got cut off there at the very end and had a little bit more to say. Maybe he was saying something is different out there or something like that or asking what's going on. But I, I did want to comment on the, the surge in uh, the popularity of gardening and where I think it's coming from. Uh, back in 2008, when I was first starting out in the show, there was a lot of it starting to show up, and uh, it wasn't anywhere near as big as it is now. It's been a growth market right through the recession, and the media would have you believe that people are starving, so they're growing their own food. I don't think that's it. I do think there is an economic component at play, but i also tell you that when you start a garden in the first year, you usually lose money in your first year. Um, you can, if you do it like, you know, not to be punning or anything. If you do it as dirt cheap as possible, uh, or if you have really great soil, and all you have to do is throw some seeds in the ground, and you don't have to really kind of do any kind of soil improvement or raised beds or anything like that. And if you've got a place where it rains, you don't have to worry that much about irrigation, or you have an easy spot to water or something like that. You, you, you can be profitable from day one. For most people, gardening year one is a, a financial loss. So why... In a period of time like this, would people be, and if you go to Home Depot or Lowe's or any of the box stores or any of the nurseries now, they're selling more varieties of plants and, and, and people are going out and buying seedlings and they're paying four and five bucks for a seedling. You know, not really a seedling, but a well started plant. Um, and, and, you know, maybe sometimes people are going out and they're paying five bucks for six broccoli plants. And you look at that and there's not really a great return of investment on that. You probably lose one out of the six, and most people don't know what they're doing and plant at the wrong time of year. So why are people doing this? I think there's a combination of reasons. One is the econ economics. I think the other is that it's it's a it's a um, it's a gateway drug to prepping, as I've said, but it's also a gateway drug where it spreads like a drug. Is the way I'm trying to say this. When your neighbor brings you a tomato and you cut it up and make a salad out of it, it tastes like something you, you, you either remember your grandparents growing or if you never had that experience, it tastes like something you've never even tasted before. And then you start trying all different varieties of tomatoes at the store and you realize that nothing you do is going to change, that it won't ever be the same. And the only way to get it is to get more from your neighbor, grow yourself. You decide to start growing for yourself. And the more people that tell and share, the more it grows. So I think there's a viral component at play. Uh, next, I think that it's a natural human function to grow and produce your own food. I think that it's something that most of us should be doing. I think that it's in our DNA. I think it's part of our self-preservation uh, mode. 
I think that we are we we evolved as hunter gatherers, and the natural standpoint for an intelligent gatherer. Uh, if you're an intelligent gatherer, you start to observe what you're gathering and say, hey, this plant grows well when it's in this kind of environment. That kind of environment's over here. If I take the seed of this plant and put it over here, I'll have two. And that turns into agriculture. So I think that it's in our DNA. So I think that's the third reason it's taken off. I think, fourth, people are becoming aware of the genetically modified food threat. They're becoming aware of what they're spraying our food with. They're becoming aware of the crap they're putting into our food. And people are starting to realize that even the organic option is, one, expensive, and two, no guarantee anymore. The, 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 the organic has gone mainstream and has become devalued. They have devalued the organic label. They're talking about making a, a, a truce between GMOs and organics now. And, and Monsanto's telling the organic people, look, plant our BT corn. Then you want to spray it with the organic BT. It has BT in it. BT is BT. What's the difference? So we splice a fish gene in the corn. Big deal. You know, it's still BT. And, um, you know, the, the true organic farmer is saying, that's crazy. But the mainstream businessman that sees organic as a premium price, huh, it's starting to sound good to him. So people are doing this in a defensive mode, not just from a financial aspect of defense, but a defensive mode in controlling what food goes into their body. And I think all of those things are coming together, and that's part of the surge in gardening. And I also believe this, and I've said it before, if every American would plant a little garden, even just one little four-foot by eight-foot bed, and tend that garden throughout most of the seasons, whenever they can, get themselves some poly and tend it through the winter if it's possible where they're at, If every American would do this, the, the decline in psychotrophic and psychogenic drugs would be amazing. There would be far less people going to counselors. There would be, I think the mental health of our nation would improve. And I think that when you do something that improves your mental health, it feels good. So I think the people that are trying gardening again or getting into it for a first time and are having that first meal when they sit down with that salad with their family and go, we grew this they realize the only way they're going to keep having the feeling that they get from that is to keep doing it, and that's making it more sustainable. And I hope it is really a rejuvenation of not just America and North America and Canada and Mexico as well, but the world. I hope the world is starting to figure this out. I think that there's places where it's really strong in Europe and places where it's weak in Europe. I think the same thing in America. There's places where it's become really strong and places where it's still really weak. But I think as long as there are those of us that are doing it and doing it in a different way than it's been done in the past and sharing with others, it'll continue to grow. Great call, Carson. Thank you. Let's take another one. Hi, Jack. This is Matt from Vermont. I love your show. And I have a question about, I'd like to get your thoughts on paper and future costs, potentially. Um, paper is obviously was once one of the most valuable things on earth. Today it's given away for free. We don't think about it much, but your caller who recently had his daughter have to do homework with a uh, carpenter pencil made me think something I've been focused on uh, paper more. Uh, as we do, as the digital age moves on and paper becomes um, not preferred uh, in the mainstream, presumably its price could, could go up, um, which I think would be a, a loss to those of us who are used to really having all the paper we want. Um, I haven't, just wondering what your thoughts are on that. Thanks a lot, Jack. You're doing a great job. Well, and I've got a little bit of comedy at the end, and maybe it'll make sense uh, later what I was saying now, but supply and demand. 
And uh, basically, things don't generally go up in price when the demand for them goes down. They go up in price when the demand for them goes up. For paper to go up in cost due to uh, decrease in demand, the demand would have to be decreased so steeply that any what they call economy of scale would have to go away. That said, I think that paper is something that eventually will become almost extinct. Uh, I think that the digital age is not going away. Those of you that believe in the road warrior version of the end of the world as we know it, if that happens, we'll have bigger problems than finding some paper. But I think about the only paper you're going to see in the future is going to be toilet paper uh, and paper for packaging. And I think even that's on the decline. But I think paper as we know it uh, is kind of going the way of the dodo. I think it's a long time before it happens. Uh, but I think it's on the list of things that are going to continue in their decline. Uh, other things that are going to think will go away. The United States Postal Service, I think, eventually will die. Uh, or it's going to have to get more money from taxpayers if it's going to survive. Uh, you know, email and the internet and Twitter and Facebook and all the other stuff are killing that. I think books are going to die. Uh, and I know some of you are saying, I'll never give up my hard copy book. I'll never do it. Where's your LPs? Where's your, your vinyl records? Where's your cassette tapes? Where's your 8-tracks? Some of you, where's your CDs? You know, the CD will never kill a cassette tape. You bought a cassette tape lately? Have you seen a cassette tape player in a store lately? You know, um, I think that the day of the CD is going away. So I think all these things are in decline. Um, why do I need a CD when I can buy one little chip, and on that little chip I can keep 100 albums? You know, I think that all these things are in decline. I think eventually that's what happens to uh, to uh, DVDs. And those of you that say, well, you know, until there's full internet penetration, high, you know, high speed internet everywhere, like you know, Jack yourself, you can't get it up at your bug out location. Well, what do you do then to get rid of the DVDs? Well, you go to a digital player that can download information, and those that want to buy. You know those little red box things and all like that? If you want to rent or buy a movie, you'll go there. You'll stick a jump drive in there. You'll select the movie you want to rent, and it'll come, and it'll just blow up after the rental period, or you can buy it and pay a little bit more, and it'll last, and you can add it to your digital library. Um, so that's how they'll, they'll get around the, uh, the pipeline issue for the people that live in rural areas that can't get high-speed Internet. Paper as a whole, I mean, I'm not a stockpile or anything. Having some notebooks and stuff like that around is a good idea. I don't think we're in any danger of that lately. Will the price per sheet go up at some point? Maybe, I, but I think we're, we're so far from that, it's not worth worrying about yet. But it's interesting to look around and contemplate how many things that are very common today won't even be here or be very rare in, uh, in 10 years or 15 years from now. And uh, again, it's not that I don't think that we could ever have that kind of doomsday, end-of-the-world scenario. I just think the likelihood is a hell of a lot lower than the misery that people receive by the constant devaluation of their money or something like a pandemic or something like that. I think that we're not going to see a day in our lifetimes where technology goes away. And those of you that believe there's no reason to use technology because eventually it's going to go away, I think you're missing out. And if it wasn't for technology, there wouldn't be a survival podcast, right? If there wasn't a Facebook, there wouldn't be another line of communications between you guys and I and the audience. Those that you know poo-poo the GPS because, well, if you don't have a GP, if the GPS fails, then how are you going to get home? Well, you know that's that's why we learn to do math with a pencil and paper before we learn to use a calculator. And that's why we learn to navigate with a um, you know a, a a a map and a compass and shooting an azimuth and a back azimuth before we just rely on a GPS. That doesn't mean we throw the GPS away. So um, I, I don't know that I would worry that much about it, but it's an interesting, thought-provoking question. Thanks for it. Let's go ahead and take another one. 
Hi, Jack. My name is Nick. Um, I'm a first-time caller, and um, I wanted to say, you know, number one, thanks for everything you're doing on the show. Um, I'm a big fan, and I love your work. Um, the reason I'm calling is regarding, actually, my financial situation. Um, I'm 27 years old. I've, uh, I'm well aware of the challenges we're facing. I've seen the Martins inside. I've been really following up on this for a long time, and um, I decided to take some personal actions and pay off all my student loan debt. So I had that goal in mind. I took the necessary steps, got that taken care of. After that was over, my next goal was to, you know, save as aggressively as I did when I was paying down the debt, if not more so. So I set that goal in mind. I took some personal actions in my life to make that happen. Now that I'm there, I don't really know where to go next or what to do next. I don't have a next goal and, you know, a sight in mind. I've, you know, considered gold. I've considered a few other things, but... I really don't know how to go about it, and I'm just a little out of my um, out of my, a little bit out of water, I guess. So I'd love to hear your comments, your thoughts, any recommendations you might have. And um, that's it. Again, thanks for the time, and I really like the show. Keep up the good work. Thanks. Bye. Well, I, I brought that call on for two reasons today. One is to answer the question, which I'll do second. And two is to motivate some of you other folks out there. Basically, what we hear this guy say is, you know, I decided to get rid of my debt, and I decided to get back to my previous savings level, and I've done that. Now I have lots of money, and I'm saving it, and every time I go to work, I make more money than I need for the week, and I put some of it in my savings, and I don't know what to do with the money. Isn't that a great freaking problem to have? And that's a problem you two can have if you'll make the same types of decisions, the same types of sacrifices, and then you'll be calling me and going, what do I do with my money? And then I'll give you an answer something like this. Uh, number one, do not be afraid to hold some of your money in cash. Do not be afraid to hold some of your money in cash. Do not be afraid to hold some of your money in cash. And one more time, and I'm not picking on the caller, I'm picking on every single person out there that asks some version of this question. Do not be afraid to hold some of your money in cash. One more time, do not be afraid to hold some cash. For God's sakes, people, those of you who think the dollar is going to dry up like Zimbabwe tomorrow morning and your money will become worthless overnight, you're not paying attention to history and you don't understand the economic system and how things work. There could be hyperinflation, yes, and when it happens, you'll need money. You'll need more money than you had yesterday. So when your bread is $6 instead of $3, if you've spent all your money to get it out of your hands before it gets devalued, you'll have no bread at all. So hold some of it in cash. That's that's the short answer there. But I think long term what you need to do is, one, I do need to think you need to sit down and find a good financial advisor. And I think you need to take some portion of your savings and you need to say, what if success happens? What if Jack's wrong about the economic collapse? What if there is a future for, for our economy? What if even if the dollar collapses, it does it the way that it did under Bretton Woods too and it sucks, but yet we have a rebuilding and there's a future? So you need to take some portion of your money and put it into long-term retirement. And some of that long-term retirement is going to stay liquid in case something changes, and some of it's going to go into a tax-deferred status. And the rest of it, you're going to hold cash, and you can keep saving cash. And you might look for some creative investments you can do here and there with a little bit of it, and you're going to hold some silver or some gold. And I think that you're, you're, you're going to wait a little bit on that because I think we're looking at a point where silver is going to come down yet some more. Um, and I think that it's probably a better place for your money than gold. Uh, for some small portion of it right now, maybe you put a little bit in some gold long term, having $5,000 worth of gold that you can you know, go anywhere in the world with and have $5,000 is not a bad idea. Um, but I think the bigger thing that you're going to do is you're going to figure out what you want in your life. 
And you're gonna you're gonna save money to buy that, and that will drive your savings, and that will drive your investing, and that will drive your decisions. So my question for you, young man, is what do you want? What is your vision? Where do you want to be 10 years from now, 15 years from now? Your financial advisor helps you out with 65. I don't care about 65. That's easy. You put money away, and if the whole thing doesn't blow up, there'll be some money for you when you're 65. I'm concerned about 35 and 45. Do you want out at that point? Do you want out partially at that point? Well, now we have to start looking at, do you want a home? What kind of a home do you want? What kind of redundancy do you want built into your home? Do you want you to produce your own energy? Do you want to rely on the grid for that? What do you want? I can't tell you what it is because I don't know because I'm not you. But I think you need to figure out what you want. And then you need to build a plan to fund that. And you need to make whatever that is as self-sustaining as possible for you. Where do you want to live? What kind of life do you want to have? What kind of relationships do you want to have? You know, how important is your family to you? How close do you want to be to your family? Do you want to get away from your family? You have to answer these questions, right? Until then, just hold cash. If, you, if, you, if, if nothing else makes any sense, if you can't find an investment you feel comfortable with, put it in laddered CDs, you know? Make 3 or 4% from, uh, what are they called? ING Direct, and I think right now that's more like 2%, 2.5%. But, um, you know, put a third of your money that you're going to hold in cash that you know you're not going to need for the next year in a one-year CD. Put a third of it in a two-year CD. Put a third of it in a three-year CD. Uh, take the one-year CD when it comes to renewal and change it to a three-year CD. And take the two-year when it comes to renewal change it to a three-CD. And then you have three three-year CDs, but they're all maturing one year apart from each other. Um, you know, don't fret over the fact that you have cash. As far as what you're going to spend it on, it's all about what you want. And that's the crazy thing that Americans have become so laden by debt. Americans have become so laden by not having enough money that when they have extra money, that we actually look at it and go, man, what do I do now? Like it starts to burn a hole in our pocket. Well, you know, I'll tell you what you do with it. Build the life you want. And that way you'll live a better life if times get tougher, even if they don't. And, and you have a great problem now. So solve your problem by figuring out what you want to do with your money long term. And yes, put some away for the long term, but use some of it to build that life now. Start using and harnessing that income now that it's not being taken away from you in the form of debt, to give yourself the home you want and the life you want. Uh, let's go ahead and take another one. Hey, Jack. Jason from Pennsylvania here. Um, was putting stuff into my garden, my box garden, and uh, a few other spots, and noticed these really small, almost translucent white worms. Is that a bad thing? They weren't like the big, fat grubs. I mean, these were long, thin... Um, I don't know if they're baby earthworms or if they're some sort of nematode worm, but I uh, just wanted to get some insight from you on that. Thanks, Jack. I like to put a call on occasionally where I can say I don't know. I can tell you they're probably not a beneficial nematode. A beneficial nematode are generally small enough that you would need a magnifying glass to see. They could be baby earthworms. Uh, they could be some other type of a pest worm. I don't know what they are. You'll have to... Uh, Maybe get a picture of them or start doing some investigation online because only you know what you saw. So even if I look something up and go, that kind of looks like we said it looked, I don't know if it's what you look. So I don't know if it's something you can even photograph if it's that small. Um, but uh, 
Odds are, if it's not causing any problems, it's not a problem. I don't generally try to eliminate something until I see it causing a problem because even if it's what we call a pest, it's probably food for something else. Um, if anybody does have a similar experience and knows what the daggone things are, especially if you're in the same general area, the Northeast Ohio, Pennsylvania, Virginia, up that way, uh, where you have similar uh, insects, let us know what he's got there. And like I said, it could be anything from a baby earthworm to, uh, to, to God knows what else. Uh, but let's go ahead and take one more. And then I got some comedy to end your Friday for you. Hey, Jack. This is Scott from Maine. Uh, I just had a question about 401ks. And you keep talking about getting out or, or being more uh, invested in your retirement. I was just kind of wondering what I should be doing. I'm 35. I got seventy five to 80000 Should I be pulling that out before things really crash, or should I just ride it out? My company does a uh, $0.50 cents on the dollar for the first 6%. I'm um, just wondering what your thoughts are on that. Uh, also a comment on the rock salt up here in the Northeast. The same trucks that haul the rock salt also haul municipal trash. So just a thought about that. Uh, thanks for all you do, Jack. Thanks. Not really sure what the comment about the rock salt's about, other than if you're talking about people asking about using rock salt for food purposes. But uh, the rock salt those trucks are hauling is probably for highway use and not like rock salt you would buy in a store that's packed in a bag. But anyway, let's uh, let's talk about the 401k. First thing I want to explain, and I want to make sure I'm crystal clear on this. When I talk about getting money out of the market and you have it in a 401k, I am never talking about liquidating the 401k and taking the money out of the 401k and paying taxes and penalties on it unless you have a very specific reason to do that, understand the consequences of it, and are doing it in spite of those. Like you've lost a job, you have no money, and you want to keep your house. Okay, And I'm not even for borrowing the money at that point. It's going to make a mess for you is all it's going to do long term. Take the money, pay the penalties, keep your house, and get back out of your hole that you're into or whatever it is that you're dealing with. When I say get out of the market, what I'm talking about doing is getting out of the market exposure that most people have in their 401ks. And I'm not even saying to do that right now. I'm saying to do that before the freaking market crashed. Right now, there's probably some decent funds that you can make a decent return on for the time being. I would stay the hell away from bond funds right now, which are generally considered safer. I think the next big blow-up, next big explosion is going to be in the municipal bond market. And these cities go into, um, into positions where they can't fulfill their obligations. So what I'm saying when I say that, and this is what you can do if you want to do that, is inside every 401k, employer-provided 401k, has to be something like a short-term cash fund or a money market account or something like that that doesn't go down with the market. It probably only pays 1% or something like that. A lot of times there might be a short-term mutual fund cash fund pays 2% or something like that. There's no penalty uh, as far as like, like the type of share for coming out of it or going back into it short term. It's designed to hold money in the interim. So if you have any portion you want to move to a cash holding or a safer holding, you move it to something like that. So that's when I say get out, and I'm not saying get out right now. What you need to do inside your 401k is look at the funds and understand them, what they invested in, what sectors they're invested in, and be prepared if that sector looks like it's going to take a beating to get out of those funds, move to cash or a different sector. In most instances in this country, because of the way we do things and what our version of diversification is, what you need to be doing is getting the hell out of everything and going to cash when something big is coming. 
Um, I think they're usually pretty telegraphed. I think you need to pay attention to this. I think you need to be ready to move. And you can do that without a call to anybody. You can use your electronic access to simply say, I want to move all my money to these funds. And they do that within a day for you in most accounts. So that's what I'm talking about. In your situation, what do you do going forward? 50 cents on the dollar um, up to uh, 6% contributions. If you can afford to save more than 6%, contribute 6% to your 401k. Get the 50%. Hear me out. Even if you, even if you right now don't feel comfortable with anything and you just go into the cash fund in your 401k or the money market fund in your 401k, if that's what you do, you make 50% on your, on your money going in. If you don't do anything but hold cash over the next five year or the next five years, you make 10% a year. That's a good return. So if nothing else, you've got a 50% return on your money lined up uh, for your 6%. So that is a great place for you to do your tax-deferred investing. Your other investing I would take greater control of. I would not put 7% in your 401k. I would not put one penny more in your 401k than what you are doing to get the employer match. I would do the rest in a Roth IRA, then you have greater control. You can hold a gold ETF or a silver ETF. You can hold a real estate trust. You can hold a oil trust. You can hold so many different things. You need a good, solid financial advisor that's going to get creative with you and be open to these things and be on the horn for you to, again, put that money into a safe position. You can always put in what's called a stop loss. And people that say they don't like them don't understand them as far as I'm concerned. And that means that if I go in and I buy a stock in a particular company and I pay $70 a share for it, I can say the most I'm comfortable losing on this is $10 a share. If this stock hits $60, execute a sale immediately. And, and that will happen. And if that stock goes up to 80, you can say now I want to lock in where I can't lose any money. And you move your stop loss up to 70. So those are some creative things that you can do there. I can keep going, but it would be a whole show on investing. Maybe it's time for another one of those. But what I want, the big takeaway from this, when I say get out of the market, and again, I'm not saying right now get out of the market. I think the market's solid for another year. I really did. I think there's so much liquidity pumped in with this quantitative easing and crap like that. There's so much money flowing that the market's going to do relatively okay. That doesn't mean you do it blindly. You need to understand what you're invested in. But I, I'm not saying bail like I did in 2008. Um... It's up to you how much exposure you want to take, but be informed. And when I say get out, I'm never talking about paying penalties and liquidating a 401k. It might be time to stop contributions to a 401k for a lot of you and to put your money into a place with greater control unless you have that employer match. 50% return on your money from day one, that's a great investment. So that's a place I think you need to stick with as far as the caller themselves. All right, with that, I wanted to end your, um, your Friday on something with some humor. So uh, you often hear me rail against the educational system, and there's a guy who used to be on Saturday Night Live a long time ago, Father Guido Sarducci, uh, who was one of my favorite comedians back in the day, and somebody sent me uh, this video that I want to play for you now, and it's his solution uh, to the high price of education and with some uh, good humor mixed in, and I'll come back and wrap the show up. But hopefully this will put a smile on your face. So, ladies and gentlemen, Father Guido Seducci on solving the education bubble. I find the education, I think it don't matter where you go to school, Italy, America, Brazil, it's all the same. It's all just a memorization. And it don't matter how long you can remember anything, just so you can pair it at the back for the test. And I got this idea for a school I would like to start Something called the five-minute university. 
And the idea is that in five minutes, you learn what the average college graduate remembers five years after he or she's out of the school. Would the cost of like $20? <laughs> that might seem like a lot of money, $20 just for five minutes. But that's for like a tuition, cap and gown rental, graduation a picture, snacks, everything. Everything included. You know, like in college, you have to take foreign language. Well, at the five-minute university, you can have your choice. Any language you want, you can take it. Say if you want to take a Spanish, what I teach you is, como esta usted? That means, how are you? And the answer is, muy bien. Means very well. And believe me, if you took two years of college Spanish, five years after you're out of school, como esta usted, muy bien, about all you're going to remember. So in my school, that's all you learn. You see, you don't have to waste your time with the conjugations, vocabulary, all that the junk. You just forget it anyway, now what's the difference? Economics, supply and demand. That's it. Business, business is you buy something and you sell it for more. Theology, I'm going to have a theology department, you know, since I'm a priest, it's only right. And what you have to learn in theology is the answer to the question, where is God? And the answer is, God is everywhere. Why? Because he likes you. combination of the Disney and Roman Catholic philosophy. Just, it's just a perfect for the late 70s or early 80s, you know? Just a perfect. Well, after the courses are all over, then it's a time for a little Easter vacation. No time to go to Fort Lauderdale. It only lasts like 20 seconds. But what I do for you, I like to turn on a sun lamp. You know, I give you a little glass of orange juice. That's the snack part, orange juice. And then after vacation, you know, after you swallow it real quick, then it's a time for the final exams. I say to you, como esta usted? You say, muy bien. Where is the God? The God is everywhere. Economics is supply and demand. Then I put on your cap and a gown. I get out to my Polaroid camera, you know, make a little snap a flash of picture for you. I give you the picture. You give me $20, I give you a diploma, and you're a college graduate, ready to go. I'm not, I'm not sure, but I'm pretty sure, right next door to the five-minute university, I might have opened up a little law school. You know, you got another minute? Now, I think there's definitely some creative license in there, and I don't think that's totally true how little people remember from their education, but I think it's true to a degree, uh, and maybe not the value of a full degree. I think there's a lot of people that have four-year college degrees that I could sit down and pick uh, two questions at random from every course they took that were pretty basic questions, and most people would fail that test. 
and they pay $100,000 or more for that education, does it really make sense? And I think that, um, that even though there's some humor there, there's some questions we need to start asking. Again, I'm not bashing higher education. I think there is a, a large number of people in this country and all over the world that would do great in a university setting and that higher learning, and I think it makes sense. And I think those people are actually harmed by maybe the half of the people that don't even belong there and how some of the stuff is drugged down because of that to make it uh, a business instead of an education. I think there's a lot of people who would be better off learning how to run an MRI machine than getting a four-year degree. I think there's a lot of people that would be better off learning a skill um, or some type of a computer skill that they don't need a degree to, to operate in. There is a place for higher education, and it's, it's, uh, it's not for everybody. There's even very intelligent people uh, who are very entrepreneurial that don't belong in a university, myself included. Never went, not going, don't regret it for a minute. Um, so I think that maybe we can get a little bit of humor, and we can glean a little bit of truth there from uh, Father Sarducci. And with that, this has been Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast. Helping you figure out how to live that better life if times get tough or even if they don't. Seeing our food these days, you know it's on our TVs. Sometimes we forget we are what we eat. I don't know the answer. It's like there's nothing I can do. It's the price we pay, I guess, when we follow our There's a better way to do this Let me show you a better way You don't have to be another face in the crowd You don't have to live the way they tell you to Revolution is you.